You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Folks, welcome back. You're listening to On The Run. I'm your host, as always, Remso W. Martinez. Go ahead and do me a favor. If you haven't already, especially if this is your first time listening, give me a follow on Instagram at OTR underscore Remso. That's R-E-M-S-O. Or over on Twitter at HeyRemso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. You may have heard from earlier in the week, I'm, I'm a bit under the weather, uh, almost didn't get an episode out this past week, but you know, we, we prevail, we strive on, you know, two a week, two year streak. I got to keep it going, but I, I wanted to go ahead and have this conversation for a while. It has been a minute since I've had an author on the program to talk about books that I actually like to read. And that's, you know, that's the selfish thing about doing a show. I get to talk about the things I want to talk about with the folks that I want to talk to. And uh, for those of you that have been in the know for more than an episode, you might know that I'm an audible fiend. I know some of you are like, well, how could you do that? That's not really consuming a book, but I like to move around. I don't often sit down to, you know, turn a page as much as I'd like to. So Audible is how I get my recommendations and Audible is how I listen to most of my books. And this one was recommended to me about a month ago. Today's book that we're going to be talking about is Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency. This is a, a history book that I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the, I'm going to give a compliment before I go ahead and introduce our author. I often get a little bit bored of history books, especially if it's about um, you know individuals, biographies, and stuff like that, where I already have an understanding. I feel like a lot of historians, when they try and write a biography, they sometimes come up a little dry. It's not their fault. It's just the matter of the subject. But this really reads like a story. Um, you could really tell that the author has a, a genuine interest in the life of JFK. And because of that, and maybe it's because I'm listening to the book instead of reading it myself, it's, it's more captivating than a lot of the other biographies I've read. And that's why I think I've, I've just become so obsessed with it recently. 
Well, I won't keep you all waiting. Today's author is Mark Up is Mark Updegrove. He's the president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation and serves as the presidential historian for ABC News. From 2009 to 2017, he was the director of the LBJ Presidential Library, where in 2014 he hosted the Civil Rights Summit, which included Presidents Obama, George W. Bush, Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and Carter. Mark, thank you so much for joining the program today. Remzo, thanks for having me, and thanks for that wonderful compliment. I'm delighted that you're enjoying the book. Well, here's the here's the funny thing about it, and you might get kind of a chuckle out of this, Mark. I'm a Republican, and my family's actually from Arizona. And my great grandfather, I'm sorry, my grandfather, uh, when he was serving in the in the Air Force, he he was drinking buddies with Barry Goldwater. So I've got you know I've got an unusual interest in JFK. I've always liked JFK, and what's funny about him compared to a lot of other presidents is that he he has this universal appeal. A lot of people I know who might criticize him for his policies or they might have you know a difference of opinion on him on something. It's hard to find anybody who has anything incredibly harsh to say about him. Democrat, Republican, Independent. And I think that's just something that's rare for a lot of our presidents, a lot of our leaders. Not many individuals in American history can people look at and usually have at least one good thing to say about. And I think it's funny, especially in this day and age, where everyone has an opinion about everything. And most of the time, when you're bringing up a politician, the first opinion isn't usually a nice one. (laughs) Mm, mm. You know, the thing is about about JFK is he's martyred. You know, he's struck down in his prime at the age of 46. And the nation grieves. It's this, this, uh, the, the death of this young leader with so much potential and promise. And I think a lot of it is, is the fact that uh, we have, um, you know, we've romanticized JFK over the years. The, the Camelot legend, which I tried to dispel in the course of the book, is part of the reason that we, we think of him so highly. But in so many ways, uh, JFK continues on through his soaring rhetoric, which so inspired the nation at the time and continues to be inspirational even after his death. So in, in, in many ways, JFK is the personification of greatness for, for folks. The other, the other part of that is, uh, Remzo, and it, it, you mentioned that, that how much, you know, things have changed since JFK's time. But one of the things is if you hear, the substance in the debates of 1960, the first presidential debates in the history of our country, in which JFK, the Democratic candidate, squared off against Richard Nixon, the Republican candidate, really, there's not a gaping difference in the way they see the different issues facing America and the world. They're pretty similar. So the the political spectrum was not as wide and broad as it is today, and certainly the country weren't, was not as divided. So let's go ahead and start from the beginning of your journey into writing this book. There are already many books about JFK out there. What compels you to go ahead and add on to that? Well, first of all, you have to take on historical figures every few years. It's really important to get new biographical takes on them because new information comes to light. Uh, our our, our uh, country changes, the way we view history changes. And all those things require us to to look at import, important historical figures again. The other thing is you write the book you want to read. And I'm an avid reader of history. That's why I became an historian. And while I've made read many good books about Kennedy, I, I, I didn't read this book. I wanted something that gave you a very 
um, brisk narrative take on JFK's presidency, why it was so consequential, why, um, uh, it, to, to give you a feel for how he was reeling from one crisis to the next, I wanted a, a book that made you feel like you were living those times with JFK in all of their consequence, in all of their turmoil, in all of their tumult. And, and that's one of the things that really kept me glued to, well, I want to say glued to the page, but, you know, glued to my phone listening to this <laughs> as I was, uh, you know, take, taking a walk or driving somewhere. Um, you know, w- when it comes, and maybe it's just me, but I, w- I was talking to a few friends as I was getting ready for this episode. When, when we think of JFK, we, we have kind of a Sparks Note version of him. You know, he came from, a, from an affluent family. He served in World War II a little bit. Then he became president. And sadly, he was assassinated. You know, that, that's that's not to say that's just what he's remembered for, but I think it, what's sad is that as we try and move on over time, especially when we try and go for more of these like, you know, glossy spark notes versions of people's legacies, you know, that, that's why I've always been fascinated by, you know, reading the biographies of men who have been American presidents. It's never just the presidency that defines them. There are always these really stark defining moments in their life that sometimes, you know, foreshadows the moments that are going to give them the most challenge in the White House, but the moments that can also help them excel and rise to those occasions of greatness. What were some of the key moments during his presidency or even before his presidency you feel shaped JFK to be the man that he became? Because obviously you knew about him before you wrote this, but what were some of the things that you feel really jumped out to you as you were doing your research and writing once again? You know, part of it is that um, uh, LBJ, excuse me, part of it, that's, a, that's a force of habit. Renzo. I, just <laughs> I can imagine. LBJ, <laughs> I meant JFK, obviously. Uh, JFK is so aware of his own mortality. And part of it is that he was a very sickly child. Part of it is that he's gone through a wartime experience in which he lost uh, people under his leadership when, when, when his... Uh, his destroyer, uh, his um, uh, Seacraft PT-109 was hit by a Japanese destroyer, uh, and he loses a crewmate and, and brings others to safety. He sees, I think, his own mortality. And in that uh, episode, uh, his brother dies in the war, his older brother, Joe, who is the hope of the family in so many respects. Uh, he was the one that his father, the, the, the Joe, Joe Kennedy, the Kennedy patriarch, thought would be the first Catholic president of the United States. Uh, he lost his sister soon after the war. He has a very tenuous hold on life. And I think he tried to live life to the fullest in every respect, politically and personally. And, and that comes through. And when, we, when he becomes president, he is so ambitious, there's, ambitious rather, there's so much that he wants to accomplish it, it bears mentioning, Ramzo, for those who don't know this history, as you know from reading the book, uh, John F. Kennedy only wins the presidency by two-tenths of a percentage point. 118,000 votes are the difference between a President Richard Nixon in 1961 or a President John F. Kennedy. So it's a very slim margin. And yet, as president-elect, we become captivated in in this young guy, this young, ambitious, eloquent, elegant young man whose family is is just as elegant as and vivacious as he is. 
And then, of course, there's his iconic inauguration when, you know, he gives this expression of American ideals in saying, ask not what your country can do, ask what you can do for your country. We, we, he, he wanted Americans to aspire to something greater than themselves, which I do think is an eternal expression of the American ideal, thinking of something greater than ourselves. And so when he becomes president in January of 1961, he, he really, despite having won the presidency by such a thin margin, he has the full command, if not support, of uh, the American public. And so much so that when he quickly stumbles in the presidency with the Bay of Pigs fiasco, the failed incursion of uh, Cuba and the failed attempt to, to oust uh, Fidel Castro from, uh, from, from leadership, uh, he has an approval rating among the American people of an astounding 83%. Only 5% of the American people disapproved of the performance of John F. Kennedy after this major mistake. And that speaks to the, the, the leadership that, that uh, John F. Kennedy was able to, um, uh, to kind of personify early on in his tenure. There were, there were two moments reading the book that really stuck out to me and made me really think about you know, my, my perception of him. One is the fact that I think, I think overall, when people look at somebody who comes from money, who comes from a family of affluence and reputation, a, a lot of folks will, you know, resort to jealousy. They'll think, oh, well, you know, that person has had everything handed to him. That person has so much going for him. He's never had to try. He's never had to work for it. I, I think really prior to, to reading and listening to his life, it's like I, I kind of fell into that. But the, the one thing that I felt as, as things continued, especially around the section where he was in World War II, is the fact that he, he may have had that, but he understood that. He, he wasn't, you know, he, he, I wouldn't call him an elitist by his behavior, at least from how you know, history shows him, but like, he understands, like he's, he's coming into a very wealthy, affluent family. There's a lot of expectation for him, primarily the expectations that was put on his older brother who would later die. But because of that, it, it made me understand more of this burden he carries, which is I, I already have a lot going for me. I already have a lot of greatness given to me by birth. It's my responsibility to do something greater. And that's, you know, that that's, that's daunting. And yeah. I, I can't, I can't imagine the stress of that. And, and then when you get to the part of your book where you're discussing him in World War II, I, I was a, I was an army officer, and there was a term for people who looked great in uniform, and you know they, they said all the right things, they looked like military men and women. You know, at least in the army, we called them spotlight rangers. There were a lot of folks I served with who had political aspirations, and you could kind of see it. Oh, they're the spotlight rangers. The question was always, is this the person you can rely on in combat? And I, I had heard about the, the sinking of his ship um, in, in high school, but this is really the first time I really learned more about it. When, when you're in combat, when you're in a situation like that, that is what tests your courage. And... I mean, he he almost didn't live. I mean, one thing you talk about pretty often is his his chronic pain, the chronic injuries and illnesses he had. He had that while serving, yet he's carrying people. I mean, he's dragging people, um, you know, from from out from the rubble and everything as he's rescuing them. I mean, if you ever, if people ever wanted to know, like, 
in this situation, is he the person who can potentially save your life? That's one of the few moments in a person's life where it's like, yeah, you can look at that and say, he did it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That That is a real test of John F. Kennedy in that moment is his, his, his uh, ship is sunk by Japanese destroyers. I mentioned it's actually literally ripped in half. His crewmates have to swim to safety. And John F. Kennedy clutches one of the crewmates who's incapacitated in, in his teeth. He literally has his clothing in his teeth. He's, he's towing him along as he swims to shore in, in one of the Japanese islands. And uh, or excuse me, one of the islands in the uh, in the Pacific, not a Japanese island. But it is a remarkable moment that shows the the sheer courage and grit of this young guy. And he, as you point out, Remzo, he was born into privilege. And, and but but he's an example of you can't judge somebody until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Uh, as you know, I, I sort of describe the vicissitudes of the Kennedy family, family, all the triumph and tragedy that that family saw and it is remarkable as as much as they achieved the tragedy they experienced is absolutely remarkable right down to the assassination of john f kennedy just two years and 10 months into his presidency the the one thing that you certainly don't gloss over in the book and i think this is essential when we want to have a portrait of somebody's life is um, you, you talk about many of his virtues. You talk about his patience with people. You talk about um, how after the Bay of Pigs, you know, um, what was it? Uh, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. I mean, he, he took responsibility for that in a situation where many presidents, prob- you know, at, at least some I can think of, probably would not have wanted to, you know, say, yeah, this is my fault. Yeah, I, it, may be, it may be somebody else's fault, but I'm going to go ahead and take the loss on this one. That's important. But you also talk about, you know, the, the things that often put a black eye on his legacy, you know, for, for a family man, a man who was often seen in photos of Jackie and his kids, he, he was an adulterer and his family knew about it. His brother knew about it. His friends knew about it. You certainly don't gloss over that area. Is it, is it hard writing about somebody especially when you've written so many positive things about them to then just be blunt and say these things that probably would not do great for a person's legacy also happened and we need to address it to get a full idea of who the man was. You know, if, if, if you want to write a, a biography and not hagiography, you have to look at the warts and all. And there are warts on this president, as glamorous as he can seem. And, and that's another reason, Remza, why you have to continue to, to write about people. Our, our history changes. There, wasn't a, there hasn't been a great biography of, of Kennedy and his presidency since the Me Too movement. And this is a you know, madman era president who you have to scrutinize in the light of the Me Too movement. And he doesn't come out very well. I mean, womanizing was part of the zeitgeist in Washington. I remember talking to Gerald Ford years and years ago, and he said that most congressmen, the most uh, you know senators, were having some sort of illicit affair. He wasn't. He didn't. I don't think. But it was common practice in Washington to to have extramarital affairs, some very openly. Kennedy was certainly no exception. So in some ways, you can say he was part of the culture of of Washington. At the same time, what is not forgivable in my view, which you can't overlook in any way, 
shape or form is his objectification of a White House intern named Mimi Beardsley, who just a week into her tenure as an intern loses her virginity to Kennedy, and he almost treats her as a concubine. It's sort of shocking what happens. He, he asks her to perform a sexual act on uh, a friend and aide um, in his White House. It, it's just, it's really hard not to really flinch when you read that and to square it with the person that we think that John F. Kennedy is at his very best. It, it's it's one of those things where, it, in a weird way, it's almost like we come to expect that now. Um, you know, every election cycle, we're we're not necessarily looking at people for their you know for their virtues. We're comparing vices and see who we want to go ahead and you know deal with. And uh, it, it's one of those things where, as I was reading this, it's like, yeah, this is this is really harsh. You you don't you know you don't leave a lot to the imagination in terms of what was going on with him. But at the same time, it's you know it's it, it's sad. Uh, I I worked in D.C. for about five years, and you know you're you're not amongst many saints. It's mm. it's really sad, and in many ways, it's like as I was looking back at this, I'm like, you know, is that is that even the worst scandal? Is that even the worst thing that you know I've I've heard you know after him or in recent memory? But I mean, I think it's just. Uh, it's it's just what happens when when men are in that position and it's it's sad and you know it, it's hard to see photos of him with Jackie and with his children afterwards knowing that but at the same time it's uh you, you know as you mentioned you, you can't talk about the great things unless you also take into account the things that are not great right yeah I can't agree more and there's a lot. There's a lot there on there on on both sides of the ledger for for Kennedy. I, I think ultimately he is a very inspirational and very consequential historic figure, but you can't overlook those blights on his character. What what do you think are the traits that made him a compelling leader though, at least in his professional capacity? And what are some of the traits from his short time in the White House that you know, you think others could learn from, particularly the little moments such as, you know, how he took responsibility for what happened in the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, I think that's part of it. That's, um, that's humility. I, I remember uh, I've interviewed seven U.S. presidents and have learned a lot about character and leadership from them. And one of the things I remember George W. Bush telling me is that the most important thing in leadership is humility. And Kennedy shows the importance of humility at, at, at vital por uh, uh, parts of his uh, uh, administration. One is, as you point out, the Bay of Pigs. He takes the heat. And as you suggested, he says to the American people, um, success has many fathers, but failure is an, an orphan. But at the end of the day, I'm the commander in chief. And the fault for this uh, falls at my feet. And I will try to do better. And he does. He resolves to do better, and he uses the lessons from that failure, from that quagmire, uh, to successfully navigate the, the crisis of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which happens a year later, about a, a year and a half later in October of 1962. It's interesting because in the beginning of the book, I talk about a, a transition meeting that he has with Dwight Eisenhower, uh, who was his predecessor in the, uh, in the presidency, the outgoing president, 70 years old, the oldest outgoing president at that, at that point in our history, yielding the presidency to the youngest president-elect in our history at that time, John Kennedy, just 43 years old. And 
Eisenhower takes Kennedy through all the trouble spots in the world, Laos and, and Vietnam and Berlin and other places. And Kennedy leaves this meeting uh, thinking about all that Eisenhower said. And he says to an aide in the, in the limousine as they leave the White House grounds, how can he stare in the face of disaster with such equanimity? But it's that equanimity, that's that calm that gets Kennedy through the Cuban Missile Crisis. He never panics. He never paints himself into a corner. He never limits his options. And through those 13 harrowing days, perhaps the most dangerous in the history of humankind, he figures out a peaceful way um, to, 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 to get out of the crisis. So uh, there's, I think, equanimity, that's that, that calm, that, that grace under pressure, which is how he defined courage. He's borrowing a phrase from, from Hemingway, uh, courage is grace under pressure. And Kennedy exhibits that at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The last thing I would say is wit. Uh, Kennedy never took himself quite that seriously. In fact, when he was contemplating a run for the, the, the presidency in 1959, he meets with the press at the National Press Club, uh, and they see him as a potential dilettante, you know, somebody who's grown up incredibly wealthy, who's relatively callow and hasn't distinguished himself in the Senate. And he pulls out an imaginary telegram from his very wealthy father, and he reads it and says, Jack, he says, don't buy a single more vote than necessary. I'll be <laughs> damned if I'm paying for a landslide. <laughs> so he knows who he is. Uh, and again, he doesn't, he, he takes his responsibilities very seriously, but he doesn't take himself that seriously. And that's one of the, uh, the, the better characteristics of John F. Kennedy. So, something I've always admired and it kind of goes into what you were saying about his personality. He, he came off as friendly in a way that you wouldn't often describe many U.S. presidents. And maybe that was, you know, his relationship with the press. But I, I always think of his relationship with one of my role models, Barry Goldwater. Mm. Here you have Mr. Conservative and then, you know, Mr. New Frontier, both in the Senate. Goldwater didn't necessarily take JFK under his wing, but they had an odd friendship. In many ways, it was almost similar to the to the you know to the relationship that JFK had with Nixon. And I, I remember reading in in one of uh, Goldwater's biographies that after um, JFK had been assassinated, I mean, he he genuinely mourned. He he. It was genuinely a a, a difficult time in his life, and one of his biggest regrets is that you know, him and Kennedy couldn't go across the country debating each other right. like a Lincoln-Douglas debate. And that's right. just one of those things where it's like, you know, many people, especially in Washington, as you know, they say, oh, oh, he was my friend, despite the fact that you could pull up on YouTube them just, you know, ca calling each other the worst things. But, I mean, you can really tell if somebody's a friend by how they mourn. And that was one of those things where it's like, it's, if Goldwater is mourning him genuinely, then, then that's a genuine relationship. And that's just not something many people in Washington have been able to achieve since. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I, I would add to that. Um, they're very similar, Goldwater and Kennedy in some respects. There was great mutual respect between the two of them and affection, as you're alluding to. And they really did think about a 1964 campaign where they would travel across the country together and do these kind of Lincoln-Douglas debate uh, um, 
the debates through, throughout. By the way, I mentioned that uh, the Kennedy and Nixon debates were the very first presidential debates, which is indeed true. When we talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, they were for a Senate seat in 1858 ah, and not gotcha. for the presidency in 1860. But but um, but they did. The Lincoln and Douglas traveled across Illinois, and they, they gave these great series of debates. That's precisely what Kennedy and Goldwater had envisioned. But I think there's another similarity, too. Kennedy described himself in a very candid interview as the antithesis of a politician. And by that, I think he meant he was not the, the kind of uh, name-knowing, baby-kissing, back-slapping politician that his maternal grandfather, Honey, Honey Fitz, the very colorful mayor of Boston was. He was a very different kind of politician, a little cooler, a little more detached, a little more cerebral. And I think you could describe Barry Goldwater in the same way. Both were very thoughtful. They were thinking about world events and domestic policy in different ways. And I think that they probably bonded on that level. Yeah. But before we wrap up, you know, when, when you were talking about him being, you know, a, a calm person, a person who was a bit more cerebral than what we would typically think in terms of our average politician. I mean, I, 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 I've always genuinely had a, a large respect and admiration for JFK. And I'll, I'll never forget when visiting the white house a couple of years ago, actually seeing his presidential portrait. And I, I really encourage people to, to Google that if they haven't seen it before, but he's the only president who has his portrait in the White House with his arms crossed and his head down. And th the reason why is because the artist who was commissioned to, um, you know, do, do the portrait wanted to show him as, as a man deep in thought as a man who understands the, the giant weight on his shoulders. And even though you don't see um, a lot of his face, I mean, you can still get the sense that compared to the other people on the wall, he's the youngest. This is stressful. It, it goes to what you said about when he was doing the turnover between him and Eisenhower. I mean, here you have the former Supreme Allied commander now giving it to somebody who would have been a junior officer at the time. And I, I, I think the one thing I really benefited from this from reading this book was the fact that you don't always get to decide when your time to be in a giant challenging situation is. And when mm -hmm. you begin to understand that your actions have a very deliberate and very real impact on people, you know, you, you change and mm -hmm. you ultimately have to decide how you're going to handle that situation in the moment. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right, and and you mentioned that portrait by Aaron Schickler, which is so anomalous. It's so different, to your point, from the other portraits of uh, of the various presidents, which are kind of those uh, iconic sort of oil portraits that you would expect of great men. But the Kennedy portrait, you could almost there's you, you can feel the weight of the presidency almost palpably in that portrait. I would encourage your listeners to look for it. You, you just uh, Google. Uh, John Kennedy's uh, official White House portrait, it'll come up immediately. And and in so many respects, it, it to your point, it, here's this young person, the youngest president-elect in our history who's taken on the burdens of the presidency. No man or woman is prepared fully for the responsibilities of the presidency. As, as Kennedy said after he, he, he slept in the Lincoln bed uh, the first night in the White House because the presidential bedroom was being renovated. So he slept in the Lincoln bedroom and a reporter asked him later what it was like to sleep in that daunting Lincoln bed. And he said, I just jumped in and hung on. 
<laughs> and, and in so many respects, that's exactly what he did with his presidency. He just jumped in and hung on and showed that grace under pressure when it was needed. So I'm with you on that portrait. It says so much, not only about John F. Kennedy, but about the, the presidency in general. Well, Mark, I know the big goal is to get people to go and actually get copies of the book. Folks, uh, the, the book is Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency. My last question before I let you go is, I don't believe any author is exactly the same person when they started the book that they end up being by the time they finish a book. Was there any moment during the writing process or during your research into JFK that impacted you as a person afterwards? You know, I think you just think a lot about leadership and um, you, you think about stuff inevitably that you could have done better. I'm a, I, I've been a leader throughout the course of my career and I looked at him and, and how young he was as, as president in the highest office in our land and the most important um, role in the world and how he did handle it with such grace. And I guess what I thought Remzo is is uh, I probably could have done a lot better in certain uh, uh, parts of my career and resolved uh, to to do better going forward by by exhibiting grace and humility and wit when I need to uh, just as John F Kennedy did during the trials of his presidency. Don't we all? Don't we all? Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a great pleasure to have you on. If people want to go ahead and grab a copy of the book or keep up with the rest of your work, how could they do so? Uh, well, by, by getting it at uh, fine bookstores near you, as well as uh, any of the uh, online outlets, including Amazon.com. But Remzo, thanks so much for, for uh, a delightful conversation. This has been a pleasure. Absolutely. Folks, if you've enjoyed conversations like our guest today, Mark Uptegrove, please go ahead and leave a five-star rating and review. Share it with a friend. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. It keeps these conversations going. And as always, go ahead and let's keep the conversation going. Uh, tune in later in the week. And yeah, I've got nothing else. Be safe. Be good. Good night. Good night.